Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. This past week, I got an email from a friend who has been here, who has been listening to our whole sermon series called The Guardian, where we're taking a look at the Ten Commandments. My friend wrote just to express his appreciation for the explanation of the commandments, the encouragement that God's word has to give. I was encouraged by his encouragement. But there's one line in my friend's email that stuck out to me. I want to read it to you. It said, thank you for not watering down what God's word says to us. That line stuck out to me because it struck me right in the heart. You see, I had read his email and just the moment Prior, I was reading a portion of God's word, which the last time I read it, the last time I had studied it with two young men, I didn't just water it down. I skipped right over it. That's right. I didn't just water it down. I skipped over it as though I had cut it right out of the Bible, purposely turning the page because of the company I was with. True confessions of your pastor. The two young men that I happened to be studying the Bible with were my two-year-old and my four-year-old son. It happened to be bedtime, and just like most nights, before we go to bed, we read a Bible story. And so on this particular night, I opened up their children's Bible to where the bookmark was, to where we last left off. And there, as we lay on my bed with my oldest son on my right shoulder, my youngest son on my left shoulder, I opened up the Bible, and it was the story of Cain and Abel. The story of an older brother premeditatively murdering his younger brother. I couldn't do it. I turned the page. I didn't just water down the story. I skipped it. tried to justify it to myself. I was thinking, you know what? I remember studying this story in study school. I remember learning all about the account of Cain and Abel, and I know that I learned from it, but what are we doing to our children these days, exposing them to this graphic violence? But I was dead wrong. I was dead wrong because in the fifth commandment, yes, we find at the climax of this story a terrible crime, but we find so much more. What you'll notice is that, yes, murder happens, but the biblical author doesn't let us simply facet on what is a terrible crime of fratricide. What it actually does is show us there is so much more to this story. There is so much more to the commandment, the fifth commandment that thou shalt not murder 
and the story of Cain and Abel. How do I know that there's, there's more to the story and the more to the commandment than, than just the murder itself? Well, Jesus told me. Jesus told me that in Matthew chapter five. He said this, he said, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. You heard that, we read that, Exodus chapter 20. This is Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount. He goes on in Matthew chapter five and he says this, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which is simply a term for, well, an insult for describing someone's lack of intelligence, you numbskull, you idiot. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. The fifth commandment says, you shall not murder. And I'm, I'm not sure, but I'm, I'm willing to bet that no one's murdered. And so we easily explain to ourselves that I keep the fifth commandment. But at some point, we have to deal with these words. We have to deal with what Jesus says about the fifth commandment and the story, the account of Cain and Abel and Jesus' words here, they make us deal with that. What you're going to see, again, is that this story has so much more to do than the actual crime that Cain committed. It has much more to do with everything that led up to it and actually much, much more to do with everything that followed it. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk our way through the story of Cain and Abel. And what we're going to do is we're going to pause at two questions for us to contemplate. We're going to pause at two truths that God speaks for us to meditate on. And then we're going to take two takeaways from this and, and apply them to our lives. So that's where we're going today. This is Genesis chapter 4, the word of your just and your merciful God, found beginning in chapter 4, verse 1. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. I highlighted these words because there are several Bible-believing scholars that look at God's word and trust what it say, and they actually differ on the word order and what the Hebrew Eve is saying. Some people think that she's saying this, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man something that any Christian mother would say, that it is God who blessed me and helped me bring life into the world. But there's other Bible students who look at this passage, who look at the word order in the Hebrew and think Eve is saying something much more significant. What they do is to take the words this way, that Eve said, I have gotten a man, namely the Lord. Eve 
really could have believed that she gave birth to the Savior. You think that's crazy, but just remember what happened just a few verses prior in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Adam and Eve got the boot from the Garden of Eden because they sinned. And yet there in Genesis chapter 3, we see already the God of grace, the God of mercy promise a savior. God said, I will send a seed born of the woman who will come and defeat Satan, crush his head. And there in that promise, what we see is the very first promise pointing ahead to the Messiah. And so Eve in faith looked at the very first child that she gave birth to and said, this is it. God made good on his promise. I have given birth to the Savior. Eve was dead wrong. You and I know that Eve was wrong about this, but I share this with you this morning to just pause and think about what life would have been like for Cain if Adam and Eve really did believe that they were raising the savior of mankind. I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us, so we're actually going out on a limb here and we're speculating. We don't know how the very first parents parented the very first child. But imagine if for a moment they thought he was the Christ, the coming Messiah who is going to redeem them and all creation. Does it maybe begin to explain a little bit of sibling rivalry with Cain and Abel? You know, we're just, we're just speculating. The Bible, again, it doesn't tell us, but you know as well as I do that if children are raised, uh, if they're spoiled, they begin to feel entitled. And if it came about that throughout their life, they figured out that Cain isn't actually the savior of the world. Did he feel rejected? Did he feel jealous? I'm bringing all this up because it brings up a question that we should consider. How do negative emotions that affect us affect your love for everybody else? None of you have ever been mistaken for the Messiah, for the savior of the world. But have you ever felt entitled? Have you ever felt rejected? Have you ever felt frustrated with the way someone treated you? In fifth commandment, God guards everybody's life. And get this, he does it through you. He does it through you caring for your neighbor, for your brothers and sisters. How have any negative emotions that, that you feel affected your love for everybody else? First question. The second one we'll get to in this. We read on. Now, Abel kept flocks and, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Before we speculated, we were, we were guessing about how the first parents raised the first children. 
But now we're not speculating. The Bible tells us exactly how these very first sons of Adam and Eve worshiped. And it tells us why the Lord looked with favor on on Abel's offering, but not Cain's. And it wasn't because God really, really loved meat and he didn't so much like his fruits and vegetables. Now, we read it earlier in 1 John chapter 3. Why did Cain murder Abel? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Answer me this. What is the only thing that makes somebody righteous? Abel was not righteous because he was so great or his offering was so great. Abel was righteous because the only thing that makes a person righteous is God's gift of faith to them. The one thing that makes a person right in God's eyes or righteous before God is faith and trust in the promised Savior that God gifted to Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. And Abel believed that. Therefore, when Abel worshiped, His worship was not about what Abel did for God. It was about what God did for Abel. And now what's the only thing that makes somebody evil? The only thing that makes somebody evil is not trusting, not believing in the promise of a savior that Jesus gives us. The only thing that makes a person's actions evil is not trusting, not believing in the promised Messiah And that's what we see with Cain. We see Cain's worship was not about what God gave to Cain, but it was about what Cain was doing for God. It was about Cain checking off the boxes, about Cain bringing something to the Lord. And sadly, there's a little bit of Cain raised in all of us. Whenever we go to church, whenever we help our neighbor, whenever we serve in such a way where we are just waiting for heaven to clap for us, our faith life is like Cain's life. It's empty of actual faith and full of ourselves. Whenever we look at somebody and we think to them that I would never sin like they sin, I would never do to my body what they do with theirs. Our heart is in the same place as it was for Cain's. We're making our faith life, our religiosity, more about ourselves than about what God has given to us. And now you see where the biblical author is going with this. Long before there was ever any inclination of assassination, there's something going on with Cain. First, maybe it was in his relationship with his brother. But then there's something going on with his relationship with God. So that's our second question is, how do negative emotions towards others affect your relationship towards God? And really, this could be flipped. How does your relationship with God affect your relationship with others? And either way you look at it, what the biblical author is showing us is long before Cain actually did the crime, sin is snowballing. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? 
If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you, but you must not, but you must, excuse me, rule over it. In just two verses, what our God does is give us two timeless truths that Christians would do well to meditate on. Here's the first. It is that the God of grace offers salvation to all people, even Cain. God gives grace, God gives salvation, the gift of forgiveness to all people, even Cain. What else was Jesus doing, excuse me, God doing than showing up to Cain and asking him a series of three questions in order for him to stop and think about the sin he had already committed in hopes that he would stop and commit no more of those sins, much less something greater. You think about the passage that says, when you are tempted, God will provide a way out for you. Here, God is doing it. God is showing up, appearing to Cain to give him a way out. Think of the passage from Titus chapter two. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-control, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. God appeared directly to Cain God appeared to you and I. He did it a little bit differently. He did it in the person of Jesus Christ, but he appeared for the very same reason. He did it so that we would wait for blessed hope. We would wait with blessed hope for the redemption that he has given all of us. So that in the meantime, while we're eager for that, we would also be eager to do what is good. And that is what God is doing right here with Cain. He's appearing to him, begging him not to let this sin snowball but to give him salvation. That brings us to the second truth, a truth that is a little more difficult for us to hear. That's why I put it in red. So we'd stop and we'd think about it. Truth number two is this, there is spiritual danger whenever and wherever there is anger. Now, this one might be hard for us to hear because we live in a culture and we live in a society which actually extols people getting angry. It's a virtue to some. Turn on the TV and what do you see? On sports channels, on dating game shows, on cooking game shows, not to mention news and politics, you see people on TV who have the ability to get angry, to put somebody in their place. And when we like that person, we cheer for them. But what this sermon is doing, what God's word in Genesis chapter four is doing, his spirit is forcing us to stop and think about not what our culture says about anger, but what God's word says about this sin. Earlier, we looked at Matthew chapter five, where we see Jesus and we could read 90 other passages that use synonyms for anger or the word wrath 
And we see that the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles, they make no distinction between anger and becoming angry and it resulting in sin. In other words, where there's smoke, there's fire. We see God making a very clear point about it with a very clear picture in just a second. But first, let me say this. What we know is that it would be going too far to say that every time someone feels anger, it's automatically, intrinsically a sin. But this would not be going too far. This is what God's word says, is that whenever there is anger, there is a spiritual danger. That is what God is getting at when he gives Cain this very clear picture. He says, why are you angry? Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you. God pictures a 500 pound Bengal tiger crouching at Cain's door, ready to pounce. And he says, stop, look, it wants to have you, but you must rule over it. And so the question is, when it comes to anger, you might say, Matt, come on. It's just an emotion. It's not a sin. Okay. You would be right. But then the question is, how close do you want to get to a crouching tiger? Check out this video and and watch the legs. Watch the legs of the tiger. pause it there. You get the picture. Jesus, excuse me, God appears to Cain, gives him this picture. Sin is crouching at your door. In the faith case of the fifth commandment, what sin are we talking about? We're talking about the sins of anger, of getting upset. And that sin is a 500 pound beast ready to pounce on a helpless hog. And he says, but you can do something about it. You must rule over it. But Cain didn't. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. This is the verse I wish I could skip over. Because it's an older brother tricking his younger brother into going for a walk. And he kills him. But you notice this. Moses wrote this. And Moses doesn't get into the details. He doesn't get into the graphic nature of killing a human being, but instead he just states that it happens, that it happened, and he did it so that we might contemplate why and apply the why to our lives. Think about what is going on in Cain's life. First, there is something going on with his relationship with another person, with his brother. Second, there's obviously something going on with his relationship with God. And so that third, when God comes to him and speaks a very clear, very compelling warning and gives him a way out of his sin, he ignores it. And then fourth, 
forth, he, he, he actually does it. He commits the crime. I said it before, I know most of you pretty well. <laughs> I know most of you pretty well, and I would, I would bet that your next step is not murder. To ask somebody to go for a walk and off them. But think about this snowball effect of sin. Frustration you have with somebody. What that frustration does with your relationship with God. Third is really the next step that you're going to listen to a clear and compelling word from God, from your pastor, from your Christian friend that says, stop, don't let this sin snowball. Or are you just going to ignore it? Or four, are you going to act on that sin? And maybe not act. Maybe there's no action. Maybe it's just apathy. Maybe it's you just don't care about anybody. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. As far as murder cases go, this one's an open and shut case. It's pretty easy to solve. There's four people in the entire world and one of them's missing. But this, this crime might be of interest to the CSI fans because of the interrogation. Look what happens. The Lord said to Cain, where is your brother? But this isn't some detective pounding on the table trying to get a confession out of a murderer. No, it's the Lord. I underlined it. It is the Lord. This is the name the Lord uses to demonstrate his covenantal promise, mercifulness to people. It is the Lord, the Lord, Deuteronomy tells us, who is compassionate, the Lord who is slow to anger, who is abounding in love. This is the one, the one who maintains faithfulness and love to thousands and forgives wickedness, rebellion, and this and sin. This is the Lord that comes to Cain and says to him, look, where is your brother? What he wants to do is get Cain to confess to him the enormity and the enmity of his guilt so that there the Lord of compassion, the Lord of mercy can speak to someone who admits the enormity and the, and the really terribleness of their guilt. Well, he can speak to him all of the immensity and all of the intimacy of his love and his forgiveness. but by no fault of the father, it would not be. I don't know, Cain replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Only empathy, only a lack of concern. And so the Lord is forced to ask, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Do you know that blood speaks? You maybe know it because your own blood tells your story, tells your DNA. Blood tests can, can tell you about diseases that maybe you didn't even know were there. 
your blood speaks, that, that real crime scene investigators can, can look at blood at a crime scene and they can recreate the scene and, and what happens. And Abel's blood speaks. Abel's blood speaks because of a speck on Cain's shirt or, or on the ground, or maybe the Lord just knew, but Abel's blood speaks and the Lord listened. The Lord listened to Abel's cry, crying out from the ground, and we've said it before, we'll say it again, that, that this is our Lord, a Lord who listens, a Lord who cares about our bodies, about everybody. He listens to his saints whose blood has been shed. He listens to babies who have been killed in utero. He listens to soldiers who will never have their homecoming. He listens to citizens killed on the street. He listens to teens and middle-aged men who look to harm themselves. Our Lord listens and he cares. He cares about our vitality. He cares about the frailty of life. Therefore, he wants to prolong all people's longevity of life because he is the Lord of compassion. He is the Lord who wants nothing more than to extend your time of grace so that your time of grace is extended for eternity in heaven. And he listens. He listens to those whose hearts have been broken. And if you look at the way he treated Cain, I want you to know that he also listens to those who break hearts. Murder might not be on your hands, but that does not mean that the fifth commandment is not something that, that really messes up our lives. You might not have literal blood on your hands, but you think of all the figurative ways we have been bloodthirsty in our behavior, with our anger, with the insults, with the pride, or just the lack of concern that we have had for everybody. God comes to you. God appears to you. And that might sound like bad news, but it's actually good because he keeps coming to you and he brings a witness with him. And his name is Jesus. And Hebrews chapter 12 says this about Jesus that your God, the judge of all the earth, brings with you. It says that Jesus comes and he comes speaking a better word than the blood of Abel. Listen, you have come to God, the judge of all. But don't worry, you have come to the God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's you. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does scripture tell us about the blood of Abel? Well, it tells us that Jesus' blood speaks a better word. What does that mean, that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel? Well, it means that it speaks a greater word. It tells a story, but it tells a better story. It tells a story of good news. It tells a story that Jesus' blood has been shed for the forgiveness of all your sins. It tells you that you can stop creeping around in darkness because you're afraid of getting hurt or you're someone who's guilty and has hurt someone. That you can stop moving around in darkness because the love of your God has appeared and his light has shone around you. And First John goes on to tell us this, that the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sins. The blood of Jesus speaks and it doesn't stop talking. 
The blood of Jesus speaks and it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It comes and it says that it has washed away all of your sins. His blood has come and it has been the ink that has written your name on God's book of eternal life. It is the blood that was used to sign your adoption papers and make you forever a part of God's family. And that means that you can stop and not think about it anymore. For one moment, do not think that God doesn't see your hurt. He sees it. And if you've been the one that hurts, that means that even for a minute, don't think that God has not forgiven your hurt because he has. The Lord is near all the brokenhearted and he's near those who have broken hearts. The Lord saves all those who are crushed in spirit and he saves those who are crushing others. Because why? The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, he's slow to anger. And he's abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands. And he has forgiven your wickedness, your rebellion. And Deuteronomy tells us he will remember your sins no more. That's the story of Cain and Abel. That's why we don't skip over it. (laughs) because Eve was right, kinda. Eve was right to believe the promise that God made her, that a savior would come and he would take the wrath. He would take the righteous anger of God. Yes, she was dead wrong (laughs) that it was Cain, but Christ came and he came to wash away the sins of even Cain and you and I as well. So now the question is, what are you going to do with that better, better story? What are you going to do with that word that you know, that you believe, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel? Well, let's close by looking at just two applications to our lives. Here's the first one. The first is that we must guard the door of our heart to rule over the beast of anger. And you might say, I know it. I get it. I've heard you speak. I heard Jesus speak. I know anger is wrong. I know that that's breaking the fifth commandment, but I'm an angry person. And those people just, they out there make me so angry. How am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to guard the door of our heart and rule over the beast of anger? Well, you can do it both proactively and reactively. And it starts all in the same place, the one place where we are given strength and given courage to rule over the beast of anger. And that's in the word of our God. In the word of our God, it can tell us, well, it does tell us that we can stop justifying our anger and acting as though it's righteous anger because God justifies us. And because God justifies us and we are right in his sight, we don't need to try to make right something that is really wrong. God's word calls sin and anger what it is. It doesn't make us have to couch it in some theological terms like it's righteous anger and really blame it on God when God should not be blamed for our wrong. But it allows us to look at sin for what it is. That it is something that is spiritually dangerous. God's word allows us to stop looking at anger and diminishing it, dismissing it, or acting like it's a soft, furry kitten that we can pet, but see it for what it is. It is a 500-pound tiger crouching, ready to pounce on us. 
God's word shows us all of that. And proactively, we can know that about anger. But we also know we can rule over it. Because the muscle of Christ is in our blood. It is not only Christ for you, but it is Christ in you. And that means that you have the power to say no to sin. That means when Satan comes tempting you with anger, that you can remind him about what Jesus did to him, that Jesus is the one who came and crushed his head. And therefore, his victory is your victory. And you have that in Christ, even over all of your sins. And that's just proactively, reactively when anger does actually happen to us because we do not need to justify our anger because we have been justified by Christ. That means we can be open on and honest about it and we can confess it. We can share to our pastors, to our Christian friends, to people in our lives that we have gotten angry and we can know because of what God's word tells us that you are forgiven and you are given the strength of the Spirit's sword that is the word of God to say no to sin. That's the first one, that you must guard the door of our heart to rule over the beasts of anger. And we do that with the loving word of God. And here's the second application, that we must guard our brothers and sisters' lives because we are their keepers. There's probably a hundred different ways that scripture lays out how we can love and encourage other believers and other people in our lives. But let's make one application as we close that is specific to our modern day and specific to the fifth commandment. I alluded to it before that we live in an age of outrage. We live in a time where people seem to uh, extol as a virtue the ability to get angry. You look at the ways that you consume media and what that does to the emotions that you feel. How is it that we can guard our brothers and sisters and and keep them from the beast of anger? Well, listen, we live in a time and a place where people do not suffer physical attacks to the degree that they do suffer attacks in the war of words the war of emotions. I'm not trying to diminish the fact that people actually still and do often get attacked physically, but so often than not, people are attacked verbally and therefore the way that we sin and people are attacked with the fifth commandment is to a much greater degree with words. And so what would it look like? What would it look like for us to not look at a culture that extols anger and just condemn it, but but we try to redeem it. We try to be salt and light. We try to be for people what God was for Cain, to come to them and say, why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? Because you know, you know all of the ways in which people are attacked and incited to try to get angry. It is a list that is long and grows longer every day. It is a list of things that we find online, opinion pages, media outlets, political spam. And the list could go on and on about things that especially Christians feel that they are morally called to get angry about. The list, the list of things, well, like cultural insensitivity, abortion on demand, transgenderism, transphobia. And oh yeah, you can also now, did you know, get mad about Olympics. And you can also get mad about neo-socialism, neo-fascism, neoliberalism, microaggressions. And just so we don't forget it, there's a war on Christmas that we are called to get angry about.
but we're not. Anger is a sin. And so one of the most daring, one of the most courageous things that we could do is simply love others by, by not getting angry. We read in 1 John chapter 3 that this is how we know what life is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Most of us will never be called upon to lay down our lives for another. But we will be called on to just lay aside our anger. I'm just dreaming here, dreaming out loud. But what would happen if Christians, and what would happen if this group of Christians were just known as people that didn't get angry? May God grant that for Jesus' sake. Amen.